Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 2nd, 2015 at Preservation Hall in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is Back Roads. So let's give a big round of applause for Jody Johnson. Good evening, everyone. So my story starts out, it's 1998. Um, my mom had just died of a massive heart attack in her sleep, and I had been going to therapy trying to work out some issues with mom and was going to have that big talk, <clears throat> but it never happened. So um, each day after work, I would go to the cemetery and sit down on my little chair and talk to mom. I would leave little gifts. And when I would go back, the gifts were gone. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe she's uh, receiving these gifts. They were little pieces of um, my mom's favorite bush was the heather bush. And so I would clip off from my garden little pieces of heather, put them around, and they'd be gone. Little trinkets of little things, again, gone. It was fresh grass. I said, this has to be mom's gravesite. I remembered there was a big oak tree. Um, when you pulled down the back road to the cemetery. And uh, it just kept happening. And I thought, this is really strange. So um, my dad, um, we didn't have much money growing up. And so my dad, um, I just figured maybe he, I, I, there was nothing recognizable on the site. So I thought, OK, maybe he doesn't have enough money to get a headstone. But I'll let it go, because at this point, you know, I, that's the, the least thing I think he wants to hear about is how there's no headstone on mom's uh, graves, gravesite. And so my brother, who's pretty well off, I said, Mark, maybe we should um, get together and pool our money and we can get mom a really nice headstone. And we did this over dinner with my dad. And um, both my dad and my brother looked at me and said, Joe, um, mom has a beautiful headstone. Uh, my mother was in theater and uh, it had the faces of the happy and the sad clown. She was a big fan of Bette Midler, and the whole uh, line from Wings Beneath Your, uh, Wind Beneath Your Wings was on it, and Roses, and it was like this huge, elaborate, <laughs> elaborate uh, headstone. And I said, oh, that's really strange, because when I go to visit the grave, there's nothing there. And he said, well, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to, I thought it was, um, Oak Grove on such and such. You took that back road to get there, and then you kind of turned left and right, and it was down a hill a bit. I said, yeah, that's right. And so, like, but what road are you on? There's lots of roads within the uh, cemetery. I said, well, I'm in L. You know, I go to L, and there's the big, big oak tree. He said, no, Mom wasn't buried in L. Mom was buried in K. So I thought the whole time, mom was listening, but she was also yelling, uh, Jode, I'm over here. Thanks. Oh, can we please have to the stage, Bob Jackson. Good evening, everyone. I was at my least mature at school when I was about 15, 16, as opposed to 12 or 13. 
Thank you. And uh, I was um, hanging out with some bad company, the leader of which was a boy called Desi Day. And he was uh, living next door to a family called uh, McAteer. And he said, Mom, I really hate living beside uh, Sean McAteer anymore, and I want us all to move. And he said, don't be so silly. Grow up. And he thought, right, if um, the McAteer family isn't going to move, then, uh, or if we're not going to move, then the McAteer family is going to move. And, we're, and so the persecution of the McAteer family began. We were, uh, instead of traveling straight to school, we would uh, linger in the back roads and conspire. So we decided uh, to send lots of stuff to the McAteer's home. And lots of stuff arrived at the McAteer's home. A lorry load, a truckload of manure outside their terraced house, and there was no front yard, straight into the street. Also, a hearse arrived to collect his brother, Enda. Uh, I was asked to send uh, to the Sunday Times for um, leather-bound volumes of John Steinbeck books, which I did. Uh, someone else sent some French lingerie, and uh, the piece de résistance was when uh, we were all half in and half out of a telephone box when we put their father's car up for sale in the local newspaper <laughs> and, and sent him the bill. Anyway, I thought that, uh, I thought, what, what happens if we're caught? He said, we won't be caught. So um, the family, the McAteer family, got in touch with the president of the school and said, uh, uh, um, we think it's Desi Day next door. He was straight up into the president's office the next day, which was a sumptuous place with a fire, and he was sucking on his pipe while doing his Sherlock Holmes bit. So, uh, Jackson, is this your handwriting? Uh, I suppose it must be, Father. And so, everyone else was suspended from school for a week, except me, because the priests in the school that I went to owed our newspaper store uh, that my father had a lot of money, and they were slow to cough up. So I wasn't suspended. So instead of getting my punishment, I was punished for months uh, by um, waiting all this time. We lived in the 60s bungalow. The president of the college phoned up and said, excuse me, why did your kids not get to the 40 hours devotions on Friday? And uh, I had actually changed my time at school and did my adoration because I didn't want any, uh, any sort of uh, um, toing and froing between school and home. Anyway, the phone rang. The president of the school was on the line. Um, no, Father, I had no idea, Father. Good gracious. And suddenly, um, my mother slammed down the phone and I was in the bathroom having a bath, and uh, the door was kicked open, and the largest saucepan in the house was being pummeled on my shoulders. She didn't hit me over the head and kill me. She, my mother was a very small woman, and she simply kept pushing the, la the largest saucepan um, that she had in the house into my shoulders, and I was sitting there mortified, not because of what I'd done, but because I was naked in front of my mother. And so 
uh, we already said, um, you know, what would happen if uh, you, were, you were found out? Uh, my brothers and sisters, uh, one of whom is here this evening, Mary, back row, hi Mary, um, said, we will say that we didn't know anything about it, but we find it very funny. Anyway, I was very, very glad to have um, finished with the persecution of the, of the McAteer family, and I was not very proud of that at all. Thank you. And the next lovely, brave, wonderful person is Jerry Riley. Good jobs, good wages, good weather. Every day, a perfect day. Today, tomorrow, forever. Vote O Party. I want to tell. I wanted. I want to tell you a story about Bob and Yoko. Now, Bob is my brother-in-law. You just heard him tell a story. That's Bob, and Yoko is Yoko. Yoko Ono. Now, I, about thirty years ago, I we had just got married. My wife and I decided to go on an epic cross-country road trip. You know, back roads, small towns, and uh, off to see America. At the same time, Bob was planning his first trip to America. He was gonna go to uh, see an old college friend in Wisconsin. So Mari and I took off, we traveled for about a month all around, and then we swung by Wisconsin, we picked up Bob, and we headed west. So day after day, we, I mean, there's a lot of driving. I'm doing all the driving. Uh, Mari's in the front seat beside me, and Bob's in the back seat, in a, in a cave, like with all the camping equipment around him. And he would entertain us. Um, he, he, Bob is a music teacher. He has a hundred, he has, he's got thousands and thousands of songs in his head. And, uh, and he'll sing and sing and sing, but he always kind of messes with you. So, you know, he'll, play, he'll do a little, you know, classical stuff, and then I'll go into some Rolling Stones, and that'll go into like a TV jingle, and he's always kind of keeping you off balance. So one day we're driving along, and he's singing, I don't know, a James Taylor song or something. He finishes it, and he goes right in to some song that is like, what the hell is that? It's this high-pitched voice. He's not singing in his own voice. He's got this weird voice, and he's singing this weird song. We go, what is that? And in the middle of the song, without me missing a beat, he says, Yoko Ono, and he just keeps singing. And we're thinking, like, who sings Yoko Ono songs? Uh, Bob, you know. Uh, but anyway, he sings this whole Yoko Ono song. He gets the end, and he immediately goes into a second Yoko Ono song. He sings that all the way through. He immediately goes into a third Yoko Ono song. By this point, we are screaming, we're begging, we're pleading with him. He's grinning ear to ear. He won't stop. And he sings an entire side of a Yoko Ono album. Now, I don't think there's anybody else on planet Earth other than maybe Yoko who could do that. But that's our Bob. So anyway, I want to move ahead a couple of years later. Um, we're down here in Wellfleet camping at Payne's Campground, which we do every year for the last 27 years. Um, uh, our friends are coming up from New York, uh, Scott and Zini, and they're going to come visit for a week. So they arrive at the campground. Before they even out of the car, Zini is talking a million miles an hour. She's telling us this crazy story. A month before, she had been out on a Friday night. She's supposed to meet her friend Amanda. Amanda's late. She's waiting. She sees this thing. It's about an art show. It's a big sh show at the New Museum of Contemporary Art. This is a big deal museum in Manhattan. And it's going to be a show of contemporary artists. And they're going to have 30 artists. 20 of them are well-known contemporary artists. And one of them is Yoko Ono. 
Now, the other 10 artists are going to pick from these applications, and anybody can apply to this. Now, Zini, you'd have to know Zini. She's a piece of work. She sees this, and she goes, oh, what the hell? She picks the thing out and fills it out, and off the top of her head, she says, for her, her piece, she's going to uh, form a third political party called the O Party, and she's going to hold the national convention at the museum. And she fills that out, drops it in the box, and she forgets about it. The day she's coming camping up in Wellfleet, on the way out the door, she picks up her mail, congratulations, you've been accepted to the big show. So she arrives here in Wellfleet going, what the hell am I gonna do, it's in six weeks. She, no, so we spend a week around the campfire every night hatching the plan for the O Party, the O Party National Convention. We're gonna rope in all of our friends, the plans get crazy, by the end of the week, we, we gotta, we're gonna have a parade, we're gonna have secret service agents, it goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> six weeks later, Mari and I, we get in the car, we drive to New York, we spend the night with Scott and Zini on a Thursday night. Friday morning, Scott and I take a van full of lumber and tools and we go to the museum. Now the museum's closed that day, it's the setup day and the, and the show's gonna open on Saturday. We go into this, it's this huge museum, the biggest gallery in the middle of it is, that's where the old party's gonna be. And we, here we are building a stage. How cool is this? So we're working on this thing in this big empty gallery. It comes around noontime, one o'clock. Scott says, I'm gonna go get lunch. He heads off for sandwiches. I'm working away and I hear something, I turn around and way across the gallery, a woman has come in, put a box down and walked out. And I think, that's Yoko Ono. And, but a minute later, she comes back in, and no, that's not Yoko. And she's going in, she's coming back, she's going in and I'll keep going, she goes, it is, no, it's not. And I, I decide, that's Yoko Ono. So I get up. And I walk all the way across this gallery. And I come up behind her. And she, know, she has to know I'm coming because you can hear her coming. And I say, excuse me. And she turns around and, damn it, it's Yoko Ono. I said, are you Yoko Ono? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, um, uh, um, my brother-in-law, Bob, is your biggest fan. <laughs> and I said, and then I tell her all about driving across the American West and Bob singing whole sides of her album to us. She said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I just want to say, you know, if you come down to the campground, we have beach fires all the time. You're all welcome. You're all invited down. If you come down to the beach fire, Bob will be there. He'll have his guitar. He will be playing. And, you know, sometime over the course of the night, maybe between Frank Sinatra and a Frank Zappa, he might just slip into Yoko Ono. And at the end of it, he might just turn to you and say, Yoko knows me. We got a thing going on. <laughs> okay, next up, we have Mike G. Mike G. Talking to the mic? Okay. Um, I actually teach seventh graders, and you guys probably won't have as much to say as they do every day to me, but that's fine. Um, my back road story is about my father and my family. Um, I grew up in Connecticut, and where I grew up, we had streets, roads, avenues, courts even. Um, when I went to visit my family in Pennsylvania, they had no, no streets, no roads. What they have is runs, and they have a very limited number of road signs. So, And if you find a road sign, they usually have bullet holes through them, and sometimes they have deer signs that, you know, Rudolph noses and lots of bullet holes in those. But my father grew up in the woods in Pennsylvania, and my mother grew up in the Bronx in New York. So they kind of came together like, you know, like a bad storm. And um, their life was always a little bit turbulent over the years. But um, 
we had once a year, we got a chance to go to Pennsylvania, which was amazing. Um, we, we drove out there, you know, I had, was one of six, so there was like eight of us in a, one of the Ford station wagons, you know, with no floor and, you know, the smell of exhaust. It was, it was a great time. Um, but um, my mother um, was always on the upbeat and my father was always serious. So we took a shortcut in, um, um, it was the um, Poconos. I don't know if you've ever been in there, but back in the years, I just remember as a kid, we went through the Poconos and it took, it was a shortcut and it was supposed to be a seven hour ride, but we went to the same gas station twice in four hours. And then we continued on our way. And my father had a lot of you know, four letter words and he wasn't very pleasant about it. But anyways, we got to this family reunion and um, <clears throat> my, my family out there were horseshoe players. I don't know anybody knows how to play pinochle. Um, and they drank a lot. They had the horseshoe pits and they'd have a keg of beer on either side so you didn't have to switch sides. Um, and they're really, you know, backwoods. You know, they went to bed at night with chewing tobacco in their mouth. They took it out and put the fresh in the morning, you know, so that they get all freshened up. Um, but anyways, uh, my mother was an avid smoker. And this story is a little bit how smoking saved her life, kind of. Um, a little bit of background information. One of my uncles was a guitar player and he used to sing, he took a fine time to leave me Lucille over and over again and it played almost all night long and he was a scotch drinker. So by the end of the night, you know, you go to bed listening to, it took a fine time to leave me Lucille. You know, it was, it was beautiful. But people were singing and partying and um, I remember it was a hunting camp where we had our family reunion and we had 200 relatives there. And back then, you know, you never knew when you were gonna get your next meal. So if you went to somebody's house, they always fed you. But my uncle that sang, uh, took a fine time to leave you, Lucille, got, bought all the food for everybody. But he got hot sausage, and we had hot sausage for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It would come in different forms, you know, but it always showed up. Like we had spaghetti one night with hot sausage, you know. We had breakfast with sausage, and it was hot sausage. But it was a hunting camp, so all they had was outhouses. There was no indoor plumbing. And the thing was, it was really cute because some of my relatives were married for a long time and they had two, you know, two stalls in there, you know, so you could go in there. And some would actually hold hands and, and go to the bathroom together. <laughs> it was really beautiful. Um, they really appreciated if the guys used the trees and the women used the bushes. But, you know, if you had to go, you had to go in this outhouse. So um, I remember I was only like seven or eight years old and it was really a lot of fun because in the hunting camp there was all these big knot holes and I got a chance to get a peek at some of my cousins at a young age, you know, more than I ever saw before and it was a lot of fun. And the bunk houses were all like three high bunk beds, so it was pretty neat. We were all sleeping in almost in the same places, but there were some rooms. But anyways, so in the middle of the night, my mother was up there and my father was one of the good old boys, so he didn't help out at all. And she had, I think, four kids at that time so she had them all sleeping and she left. And of course you heard, took a fine time to leave me Lucille playing in the background. And she went into the outhouse. You know, it was probably like one or two o'clock in the morning. And when she closed the door, the latch to the outhouse closed. And she was banging, she was yelling. But you think about 200 people, hot sausage, you know, big family reunion, lots of beer. She was in a difficult situation. So she was stuck there and she was banging and yelling and took a fine time to leave me, Lucille was playing and she was really in a hard situation. So she looked in her pocketbook and she, she found her cigarettes and she was like, oh my God, cigarettes. So she emptied out all the cigarettes out of her pack and she reached up and she jimmied the latch. 
and open, and she actually freed herself out of the outhouse. And I know that my mom's in a better place. She passed away, but I'm sure that someplace along the line, it smells a lot better than that outhouse. But thank you very much. Here we have to the stage, thank you very much, Roland. Thank you very much. Uh, the theme is back roads and if the internet is a back road, maybe I have a story. Because if you, um, if you were on the internet and you Googled one hit wonders, it would come to my page. Because I, some of you may know, was Billy Donahue. I've got more fans here than I thought. Actually, you know, I, I was a rock and roll, you know, fuzzy sweater kid. I'll tell you the story, the whole story, the, the, the start of Billy Donahue, the, the whole story of Billy Donahue, the middle of Billy Donahue, and we'll end it with the, the end of Billy Donahue, because uh, I, I segued out of this, I segued out of the showbiz life about six months after it started. What happened was I, uh, I, was, uh, I wrote a song when I was in Salzburg, which is a you know, back road place. That's the last reference to the back roads. Unless you want to mention the Brill Building, which is Broadway and 47th Street. No, that's not a back road. I wrote this song in Salzburg, and, I, and uh, girls liked it. So when I got to the States, I thought, you know, maybe I could like, get someone interested in my song. And I was walking into the Brill Building, which is What's known, the Brill Building is what Tin Pan Alley is, really. Everybody was there. That's where all the songs came from. That's where rock and roll hatched. That's where uh, Carol, what's her name? Yeah, Carol King. And, and uh, Neil Sedak and all those cats were writing their songs, and that's where it all happened. And I was, I was walking in. These guys were walking out. One was a guy named... Marvin Kane, and the other guy was uh, uh, Jerry Moss, and the other guy was Lenny Gaines. These three guys from Coed Records were coming out as I was going in, and they saw me, and they stopped and they said, "Hey, kid, do you sing?" And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "Wow." He said, "Sir, the kid's a gentleman. Come on, boys." And he took me back. They turned around, they didn't go to lunch, they took me back up to their office, like, what the hell's going on here? And, and I got up to their, their office, and I'm, you know, is this a scam, or what's going on? But there was Johnny Mathis in the room, he was talking to them, it was co-ed records, this was a legit thing. And Lenny Gaines had a, had a scheme whereby I would go on Name That Tune and win, after 13 weeks of you know TV stardom, singing a couple of songs on the way and ringing the bell and winning and so forth and so forth. And they said, this is it, kid. You're going to be a star. And I said, yeah. Yeah, take this contract and sign it. And I said, well, wait, I don't know anything about contracts. Let me take it to a friend of mine who knows about these things. He's in show business. They said, OK, OK, I'll see you. So I went back to Pelham, New York, where I lived. Our backdoor neighbor was a guy named Roy Windsor. 
and he, uh, he was the producer of uh, Search for Tomorrow and some other soaps. And I showed him the contract and said, it says here you're going you're gonna to win in that tune? I said, well, I don't know. This is just what they said. What, you're going to win it? What are they going to do? Give you the answers up front or what? And furthermore, I'm the monitor for all TV shows that are sponsored by American Home Products, which is this is one of them. And I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And he started making some phone calls and named that tune, went off the air like that. George DeWitt moved to Cuba. The whole thing fell down. Then there was a, 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 a what are the Senate? They, they, you know, the Senate finds out about other things like that, and down goes uh, all the other ones. I'm sorry to tell you, tell you folks, but it, it was me. I, I blew that one. <laughs> Where the sixty-fourth million-dollar question now, and all, all they'll, you know, what's his name? The famous liar that, that won and lost. So, catastrophe as far as Name That Tunes is concerned, but I get to cut a record anyway. On the way to, uh, well, I don't want to go to that part. Yeah, I, don't, I only have a couple of minutes. Um, the record came out, I was to do a, a guest appearance on some ocean liner with Andy Whit. Oh, dear me. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to lose that part. Doggone it! There's some. So much. I'm gonna write this story. This is. This is going. I didn't. I didn't think I had a story, but the more I think about it, the wackier it gets. Dick Clark wanted a piece of the action, but Lenny Gaines already owned a hundred percent of me, so I, I couldn't. I couldn't deal with it. I, I was on the, the, the that the dance party thing, the Dick Clark show. And they had to cut the cameras away because I was signing autographs on girls' bras, and it was all it was. And then I was at the, uh, at the Alan Freed show. I did I did that, and um, uh, backstage, Jerry Moss was talking about paying for airtime or something like that. I didn't know what to say, and I, and I finished lip syncing my song, and and <laughs> and Alan Freed comes over and said. Uh, uh, How's it going, Billy? And I said, Well, I don't, I don't know, Alan. It's, I don't think they're paying enough for airtime. And, and I saw Alan Freed's smile go like that. The next day, headlines: Payola scandal rocks industry. <laughs> Jesus. So, you know, I, Frank Sinatra owns uh, his comeback to me because they stopped playing rock and roll for six months and only played Frank Sinatra songs. That's the uh, that's uh, that's a bit of the, a bit of the struggle. Sorry, but I'll get back to you. Roland, thank you, Roland, showing us what's like. but then she backed out last minute. And so I decided that, you know what, I'm gonna go anyways, but I'm gonna kind of modify that, so just go to Scotland. Um, I decided to save some money to stay with an ex, which, first of all, that's one of those roads you probably shouldn't travel down again. <laughs> um, 
So bought tickets with Air France. I thought Air France seemed like a legit company at the time. Um, so I go, I'm all excited, I'm on my own. I take this crazy bus that cranes through the streets of Madrid. Um, get on my first flight. Now I buy these tickets. They say uh, Madrid to Paris to Glasgow. All right, one layover, got it, good to go. I can't stand, understand a word on the plane because it's all in French. So I have no idea what's going on. So we stop in Paris, no big deal, beautiful airport, it's awesome. So I'm trying to figure out, all right, how much time between this flight and my arrival in Glasgow? I'm not really sure. So we're on the plane about 45 minutes, and they're saying a whole lot of stuff I can't understand. And I look at the guy next to me, I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he's like, well, you have to get off this plane. And I was like, well, what do you mean I have to get off this plane? Are you getting off this plane? He's like, no, you get off the plane. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I have no idea. I'm like, is this, is this Glasgow? No, you get off the plane. I said, all right, cool. So I'm a little bit panicked. I start thinking I got on the wrong plane. So I'm trying to think of who I can talk to. No one's terribly helpful at the time. And in the back of the plane, I th hear three really angry gentlemen with thick, thick Scottish accents. I'm like, those are my guys. So I kind of follow them like a little puppy, and I go, hey, uh, I'm guessing you're going to Glasgow, right? And they're like, well, we thought we were. I'm like, so you're planning on going to Glasgow, right? They're like, well, well, yeah. I'm like, where are we? And they said, well, I don't know. I'm like, so you don't know where we are either. And they're like, well, this is the right plane. I'm like, well, this is what it says. So we get off. We go to customer service. It, it turns out we're in England. So we're close-ish. Um, and we go to customer service where they tell us to go because no one actually knows why we're here. Um, and customer service is empty. And so I'm freaking out because I haven't quite figured out the whole um, time difference yet between Madrid and England. So there is an hour. Um, so I'm panicking because no one's at customer service. I'm like, we have to go. We have to go to the gate. And they're like, well, not yet. And I'm like, well, what do we do? I'm like, well, we're going to go get you some whiskey. I said, well, okay, like this seems like not a good idea, but I really have nothing else at the current moment to do. So we go, and I um, happen to have some marzipan from Toledo, and I, they're sharing stories, and it was a really cool experience for me, um, except two of the people had just come back from doing awesome uh, community work in Africa, and the third guy is like a friend from high school that they did not travel with. Um, and he's downing the whiskey belligerent. So we decide to go get back on the plane. Um, nobody, it doesn't say on our ticket, so they're not letting us on. So finally, it's the last call, they're boarding the plane, and I go up to security, I'm like, listen, this is the ticket I was given. I think that's my plane, like, I don't really know what else to do. And so the security guy was like, well, you wait right here. Meanwhile, my, my new buddies, um, they're trying to talk to the security guards as well. But unfortunately, the belligerent one is doing all of the speaking for them. And so he starts screaming at security, and the security guy looks at me, he goes, are you with them? No, sir. <laughs> Bolts on the plane. I think I'm in the clear, except my buddies do make it on the plane. And so the other two guys that were very calm and mellow, they sit in the front of the plane. My belligerent friend comes and sits next to me. He gets really close to me, he goes, I'm gonna kill the pilot. <laughs> what? He goes, 
Well, not while the plane is in the air. Um, so maybe you shouldn't say that in this day and age. Oh, no. You watch. I'm going to kill the pilot. So this guy, and this is a very small plane, on the edge of the aisle looks at me and goes, what are you going to do about that? I go, uh, uh, I, I don't know. So I also realized at the time I don't have the right currency with me. I'm starving, I'm hungry, and I'm terrified. So finally his buddies call him over. Um, we do arrive in Glasgow. I bolt off the plane, and I uh, call my mom. It's her birthday. And I'm on the, the phone with my mom, and I was like, oh, everything's good, everything's great. Like, it was a great trip, I, I made it safely. And then my friends yell, hey, where are you going? And so my mom goes, well, who are they? I'm like, you know, I'll tell you later. So that's my roadless taking. That's a wee bit Courtney there, what? Yeah. It's a shout out to you now. I will forever do a belligerent bit of drinking. No. Okay. Next person up is Beth. Hi. Am I close enough? Is this good? Hi. Um, this is more back roads of the air than back roads of the land, but it's kind of a back road story. Um, in 2001, right around the time, in fact, of 9-11, uh, uh, well, actually, this, is, this must have been, yeah, right around the time of 9-11, I was kind of having a bad time. I'd lost my job, and um, something else was going on, and I was just feeling kind of sad. And, and then I became even sadder because I learned that um, one of my favorite great aunts, who was a lovely lady named Grace, who lived in a little town in West Virginia, um, had finally done what we'd been telling her she was going to do for 50 solid years, which is fall down the stairs. She lived in this beautiful Victorian house with uncarpeted stairs. And everyone who loved her had been saying, Grace, you've got to do something about those stairs for 50 years. And finally, at the, the age of 97, she slipped and fell down the stairs and broke her shoulder. And when you're really old, breaking a bone can be fatal. And the doctors pretty soon found that, that you know, that's pretty much what we could expect, that, that Grace would probably linger for a couple weeks or maybe a month, and then she would go. So um, when, um, when it began to look like you know, the time had come, um, my cousin, who was taking care of her, summoned the family. And um, I, uh, I found that the airlines have something called a compassionate rate, that if you're going, you know, if you've been summoned to the bedside of the ailing matriarch of your family, then they give you a, you know, a good rate to fly there. And I had to fly into Pittsburgh, which is, I guess, the closest airport to Sistersville, West Virginia. And, um, you know, and I was feeling, you know, I was, I was already feeling rotten, and now I'm going to, the, you know, the deathbed of, of this woman that I love. And, and um, uh, so I get to the airport and, uh, in Boston, and, um, and it's early on a Sunday morning, so there's not many people around. And uh, since it was right after 9-11, they were, you know, all, everything was, you know, all the, the security procedures were changing, and I didn't really know what to expect. And they, they didn't make me take my shoes off, but um, they were doing, um, like, random checks of people's luggage. And they decided to check my luggage, and I thought, you know, that's just my luck. Um, so they rummage around, and they find my little sewing kit, which, you know, I had in my suitcase. You know, I just kept it in a pocket there. It always lived there. It had been there for probably 10 years. And it had, you know, those little scissors that have... Inch, you know, not even an inch long blades, and they say, well, you can't take these on. Like, okay, chuck the, chuck the sewing kit, whatever. Um, so they, um, you know, so then I 
pack my stuff back in the suitcase and I go out. It's, it's this tiny little plane. That's why I say back roads of the air because it was, you know, it probably seated like 12 people or something. And um, and I get on the plane and there's nobody else there. And um, and after a while, a, a flight attendant comes and and says, "Well, we're getting ready to go." And I was like, "Well." <laughs> where are the other people? And she says, oh, honey, you're the only one. I was like, really? You know, you don't have to make this flight just for me. You're, I'm not even paying full price. I'm getting a compassionate rate. <laughs> um, and she says, well, we have to get the plane to Pittsburgh anyway, so, you know, it's no big deal. Um, and, and then I thought, okay, that must be why I got to be the random, you know, oh, I'm too far from this. That's why I got to be the randomly selected one person <laughs> who gets their luggage checked, because I was the only person. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, you know, I strap myself in, and 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 the the flight attendant attendant comes back and asks me my name, and I thought, isn't that sweet? So I said, my name is Beth, and um, and then she disappears again, and a minute later, the you know the PA crackles, and the pilot says, Beth, put on your seatbelt, we'll be taking off soon. <laughs> And all through the flight, every time he made an announcement, he used my name. It was like, and it made me, I was feeling so rotten, and I got off that plane feeling like, this must be what it's like to fly private. <laughs> Robin Howard, welcome to the stage. Well, I thought I'd start out with a couple of hitchhiking stories. I was hitchhiking in Wales once and having a wonderful conversation with the driver and I said, uh, you're so nice to have picked me up. And uh, he said, uh, what the hell is the point of this story? <laughs> I forgot. And I, <laughs> I said, it was so nice of you to pick me up. And he said, uh, uh, it's very unusual for somebody to pick, for somebody to pick somebody up here. So I thought you must be a girl, a girl in terrible trouble. So I said, no, no. In America, people pick things up. Well, not, not where I come from. And then a friend of mine, Brian Heron, was trying to get to Dingle, as I recall, and he was in a terrible rainstorm. This is in Ireland, and he was, oh God, will a car ever come by and pick me up? And a car finally stopped. And they said, where are you going, lad? Well, I'm on my way to Dingle. Right, you're fine. And on they went. <laughs> and, um, anyway, this is a story. I take things so literally, I decided that it had to be about back roads. So I thought, back roads, but what have I, did I ever, oh yeah. There's one little story that I have. Um, I was just getting Lyme disease or getting over it or something. Anyway, I wasn't in great shape. But my friend Betsy had arrived, and somebody had invited us to a party at the end of when you pass Slough Pond and Horse Leech Pond, and you get to the end, and there's the ocean. And uh, a lot of good friends were there, and I was very excited. And at which point, Tom Glazer, who'd been my teacher of the guitar when I was very young, and it helped me pick out my first Martin guitar and so on, uh, arrived and said, oh, hello, darling, what are you up to? And I said, well, we're going to this uh, party and maybe you could come too. So he said, why not? So we drove that horrible road all the way <laughs> to the parking lot, which is next to Slough Pond. And he was going, my car, oh, my car, my car will be ruined. My, 
So we got there, and he said, well, I, 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 I think I heard a little ticking or something. I think I better stay with the car for a minute, but you go on. So we took all of our food, and we started out, Betsy and myself, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and nobody was coming. So we started yelling, Tom, Tom. Nobody came. It was getting dark. Betsy was being eaten alive by mosquitoes. So we finally got to the end of the road, thinking he would show up at any moment. And we had a wonderful time at the picnic. And every five minutes, we'd get up and say, Tom! No Tom answered. So finally, it was time to go home. And I think Ike and uh, Noah were the ones who said, well, we'll take you as far as you know, your car. So we arrived at our car, which wasn't there. And uh, there was just a box with a bottle of whiskey and the beer that he had bought for his thing. So I thought, oh my, I wonder what happened. Well, something must have gone wrong with the car, perhaps. What had happened, of course, was that he'd taken off on one of the wealthy roads that has always led anybody who's done that to uh, God knows where. I've been lost many times on those roads. So uh, they took us home, and I met a friend at the, about a month later, he said, what did you do to Tom Glazer? He came back to the city and said you deserted him in the middle of the Wellfleet Woods. <laughs> and I said, no, we, we looked for him everywhere. We yelled for him and screamed for him. Well, he doesn't think so, and your name is Mud and will never be otherwise with him. And I never saw him again. <laughs> May we have to the stage, Marge. Is this good? I'm terrified. Okay, this is, <laughs> um, I'm a cyclist and cycled for many, many years in New York City. I mean, I'm so good, I could be with the, what do they call the delivery guys? I mean, I'm in and out of cabs, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But, you know, I always wanted to do long distance and do tours, and so you have to train to do that, and you can't just go around Central Park 400 times. <laughs> so, you know, I'd go upstate and I'd be riding, I'd go here and I'd do this and I would do that, and dogs always wanna come out to greet you. I'm terrified. I love dogs, they're okay. I'm terrified of them, okay. so. Upstate New York, I used to carry a little thing with mace, and um, I never used it. I was really happy. I'd either outrun them, or I'd stop, and I'd scream. You know, something would happen. So I finally do, I have my dream trip this spring. I'm going cross-country. And when you go cross-country, they start streaming on, you know, the uh, emails and this and that. So someone brought up the idea of the dogs. What about dogs? Well, everyone starts to put in their two cents about dogs on the road. Oh, they're really bad in the South. Oh, forget it, Mississippi, Louisiana. So I'm getting a little nervous. I'm thinking, oh, shit, now what am I going to do? You know, I'm afraid of dogs. So I have my mace or whatever, my spray. Then I see something online. It's a, a, an ultrasonic thing that you can use, and, you know, the dogs will stay away from you. So I said, okay, I'll do this. So I get to the tour. We start the tour in California, and... There's a little discussion about dogs, but not too much, and the guides are really downplaying it. Okay, no big deal, no big deal. Okay, I'm like, all right, okay, we get through California. Arizona's okay, 
I don't know why we haven't met dogs yet. We get into New Mexico, we come into these little towns, and they're waiting for us. They're, they're waiting, they're not chained up to anything, you don't know who owns them, and the pit bulls are, so I get out my ultrasonic thing, the first dog that's sitting there, like coming at us, I'm going like this, and, I'm, I'm going, and it stops, and I'm like, oh, thank God. Meanwhile, every night we're camping, and we're talking about dogs, and did anybody have any dogs? No, 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 no. I mean, my anxiety level is, you know, where's my Paxil? Where's everything that I can have for this trip? So, so you know, I've got my little thing here, and, and meanwhile, people are getting a little bit of a sense that I'm really getting nervous about the dogs. Okay, so we, we ward off a few of them. And every night, everyone talks about, you know, did you see that big black dog that came out? Yeah, 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 okay, okay. So we're riding along, and meanwhile, I'm thinking I'm not protected enough because the thing isn't working all the time. The dogs are still chasing us all the way through town. So I'm really getting scared. So along the highway, we had to ride on I-10 because there's no, you know, there was no back roads. And a friend picks up this thing. It's like a tire thing. Here, Marge, get this. So I've got something on the back of my bike. I've got a whole container there of, like, I have an arsenal to get against these dogs. How can you get at a dog if you're going 20 miles an hour and they're coming at you? So anyway, it was kind of a waste of time. Long story short, we're getting near Louisiana, and I'm almost ready to quit because I'm so anxious about dogs. And I thought, okay, there's one guy there, and he seems very calm, and he's easygoing. I said, Roland, please, can I ride with you? I don't have to ride with you. I can do this, but can I ride with you? You don't seem to be afraid of the dogs. He said, yeah, 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 of course, of course. So we're riding, and they're all over the south. We come into Maryville, Mississippi, the first town, and they're all over the place. I mean, they're behind the gates. They're here everywhere else. So I'm watching Roland, and every time we'd come up and the dogs would come out from the yards, he'd say to me, all right, get out, get out. So I'm on the gauntlet now. I've got logging trucks here, and I've got dogs over here, and Roland's riding along, easy boy, easy boy, easy boy. And they're listening to him. They're listening. You know, meanwhile, I have the arsenal I have here. I've got straps back here with tires. So I learned to say, easy boys, I got so brave that by the time I got to Florida, I could almost do the trip by myself, but I stayed with Roland for the whole thing. And now <laughs> we have Terrence Noonan. <laughs> Who was telling the story about the Cadillac? I want to hear. I want to hear that Cadillac story. That's what I'm talking about. Exactly. So, um, um, this is going to be a uh, kind of a crowd decision. I have two stories about back roads, you know, and I hate to do the bifurcated binary universe thing, but one is Eros and one is Thanatos. So you gotta make your choice. I give it, I give it to the audience. Who wants Eros? All right, there's Eros, all right, all right, all right. And for the goth, who wants Thanatos? Ooh. Oh, sweet Jesus, that is tough. That's a, that's a tough call. All right, so um, I'm gonna go into hyperdrive. Um, when you're taking a road trip, one of the most important things that you ever do is decide what tape you're going to have in. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. 
All right, because you're starting off, and you're like, this is it. You know, we're going on like a 3,500-mile-an-hour drive. We've got to have the right tunes. We've got we to gotta do it. And it's like 1979, and we got to hit it. But you also have to have ground rules. You know, like you're in a Toyota Corolla, so you got to have ground rules. Like, we're not going to have sex because we're cousins. And, <laughs> and that just makes sense. Um, but beyond that, we're, we're also not going to pick up, well, you know, like, we'll pick up hitchhikers, sure, but we're not going to pick up stray animals because then they're going to be ours. <laughs> so we won't do that. All right, that's, that's a no-no. Uh, so then, you know, you're like 16 because, you know, you dropped out of high school, but, you know, you're cool with your cousin and your cousin's cool, and so you're rolling in your Toyota Corolla, and you wind up in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. 33, you know what I'm saying. So I go in because I have the facial hair, and she did not have the facial hair. So I roll into the Latrobe, I get the whole tour. It is absolutely stupendous what they do with beer. Oh my God, who knew it would take so much time to make such a shitty beer? And you know, so you drink it, and then you come back out to the parking lot, and lo and behold, your cousin has found a cat. How in the God's name you're in the parking lot for two and a half hours? How did you find a cat? And you've already named the damn thing. I'm mean, like, we're sleeping in the back of this Toyota Corolla. What is up with you? So for the next, I don't know, like... 2,000 miles, you're with this cat, which she has named Hunter S. Thompson, and, and it lives up to that feline name. Like, every night, you're sleeping, the two of you tucked in, when the, the back is kind of spread out, and it's down, it's flat, and it's cold, because you're in an Iowa rest area, but it's in the middle of the winter, and so it's kind of cold. But you have rolled over onto a container of fluff, Oh, God bless you, Lynn, Massachusetts, the home of fluff. And you've rolled over, and it's opened up, and then it has spread into all of your chest hair. And then when you roll back, it solidifies. Oh, mesothemioma, whatever that word is. And the cat, the cat hates you and is clawing at you. So it's, the whole thing is absolutely terrible. But to go back to the beginning... We're in Boston, and long before the cat, and long before Latrobe, and long before any of those issues came up, where you're deciding, like, should we play Boston? Because that would be awesome. You know, like, that would just be awesome. Bow, bow, bow! But you're like, no, that's not it. That's not it. No, we need something else, man. Do you play the ink spots? I like coffee. I like tea. I like the Java bean, and it likes me. A coffee and tea, the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. But you think, no, that's not going to carry me for three thousand miles. So instead, you put on Al Green, and you got this sweet little tape, and you just hold it in your hand, and it feels so good, and you just slide it right in, and there's Al. And he's taking off his shirt, and he's singing it, and he's got, and he's a preacher, and he's just, he's just laying it down. I mean, the guy's just amazing. He's laying it down, and then you're driving, you hit Worcester, and he's still saying like, "Call me," 
and then you're you're, you're like out in Great Barrington, he's saying the same thing, and then you hit the line of New York, and you realize that Al Green is now stuck in your tape deck. And you can't actually do anything. You can't turn on the radio because Al is in the, you have to eject before you turn on the radio. And it is so close to hell that you, it's, it's, it's mind numbing. But so Al is singing and you're waking up with fluff on your chest and there's a cat that hates you and you're in Iowa and you just think like, you know, like life could not get any worse than this, but it, but it can. And that's, and that's the joy of like dropping out of high school is that, y is that there's always a mosquito right behind you. So, so that was the, that was the Thanatos version of the story. I'm going to tell the Eros version in 45 seconds, which is this. I was at the Democratic National Convention in Lowell, Massachusetts, and I was with this incredibly hot woman. I, it was amazing how hot she was. I mean, like, I looked at her toes, and I just thought, like, sweet Jesus. Like, that in and of itself is enough for me to orgasm, just looking at your toes, just the way they're painted, the way they separate, the way they come together, the way that they sit all together. They're, like, waving at me. They're like a wave. I can't believe how incredibly hot all of your toes are together. And they're so cute. And then everything above that, it was amazing. And it turned out it was my wife. And that was the fortunate thing. And so we're driving home from the Democratic Convention of Massachusetts. And we're on 128. And we, we decide, because I am like, I am so, I'm so enamored, so taken, so madly in love with my wife, that we take off on 128 and Route 2, for those of you who know it. We pull off. And we, there's a little farm stand right there. And it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. I think, what the can happen here except for sex. So I pull off, and we're both naked, and boom, everything is going beautifully. And then, poof, the spotlight. The spotlight happens. The spotlight is right there. But fortunately, we have firefighters insignia all over the car. And the guy's like, boom, 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 boom. Hey, what's going on in here? I'm like, what do you think is going on in here? We're both naked. What do you mean? What? That's like the world's most stupid rhetorical question. We're both naked. We're having sex. And he's like, who's the firefighter? And I say, she is. And he's like, all right, let me take you to a back road. And I swear, that is exactly what he said. And so he takes us down Route 2. We vaguely robe. And then he takes us down Route 2, maybe about a mile. He's got his lights on as if we're, you know, Barack Obama, and we're following him. We're just driving behind him. And then he hits us with a, f with a floodlight, and we turn right, and boom, he takes us down to this farm, and then he turns the floodlight right onto the barn, and then over the loudspeaker he says, you should have sex in here. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theater Company, Kate Langstaff and Vanessa Vardabedian, and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Boobalas by the Bay Restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash Mosquito Story Slam or via Twitter at Mosquito Story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash Mosquito Story Slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.